Chapter Two of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Two: Ketchikan. I am in Ketchikan, the first port at which our steamers call in entering Alaska. It is at the southern end of the Panhandle, the strip of islands and mainland at the lower end of our territory that seems to be cut out of British Columbia. The Panhandle begins just above Skagway, near the pass over the mountains to the Klondike and Dawson, and extends south for more than 300 miles. It consists of many large islands and a strip of mainland about 30 miles wide, which runs from the Pacific Ocean to the crest of the Coast Mountain Range, the whole making a territory as big as South Carolina. This district is known as Southeastern Alaska. It has its own climate, its own vegetation, and its own peculiar products and resources. It is covered with green from one year's end to the other and differs from the great Alaskan interior as much as Maine differs from Florida. I shall be traveling within it for some weeks to come. The town of Ketchikan lies not far from the international boundary. It is only 40 miles north of the canal and within six hours sail of Prince Rupert, the terminus of the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway and the port which the Canadians are developing as the gateway to the shortest route to Japan and the Orient. Ketchikan is as far north of Seattle as the distance between New York and Toledo. After leaving Seattle, I sailed for more than 500 miles through Canadian waters before I came to the edge of Alaska, and from there made my way in and out among the islands to Revilla Gigedo, on the shores of which lies Ketchikan. The trip took me over two days. I despair of giving you any idea of the beauties of this voyage. They are so many and so varied. The route from Seattle to Skagway is known as the Inside Passage. It is a winding in and out among half-submerged mountains. It is floating through great lakes studded with islands. It is traveling along and within fjords like those of West Norway. Now you have the wonders of the Swiss lakes now those of the inland sea of japan and now scenery like that on the coasts of new zealand there are all sorts of combinations of sea and sky of evergreen slopes and snow-capped mountains there are ever-shifting color effects and marvelously beautiful sunsets these are the characteristics of southeastern alaska the whole district between the portland and lynn canals is composed of islands covered with evergreen trees many of which are four or five feet thick. A number of the islands have snow-capped mountains, whose green walls rise almost straight up from the water. Most of the mainland is also one mighty wall of green. The islands, which are all of shapes and sizes, float upon sapphire seas. When the tide is low, and the tide here rises and falls to the height of a two-story house, these islands seem like floating gardens. Then vegetation does not begin until 15 or 20 feet above the water, and there are only precipices of black rock below. The islands are bedded upon the rocks, and as the water falls, the living earth seems to be lifted up. The forests sit aloft on pedestals of stone, and mountains of green and white tower above their rocky bases. Here, bold cliffs, brown and gray walls several hundred feet high, rise sheer from the blue waves, there are the bare rocks thrust out from the growth of pines on the hillsides. As you sail on to the northward, the channels vary. 
Now they widen into great lakes. Now they are rivers as narrow as the Hudson or the Rhine. Sometimes the way lies through gorges between the islands and the mainland. In places, the waters are a thousand feet deep. In others, there are great rocks as steep as high and as sharp as the Washington Monument, which come within 20 or 30 feet of the surface. These are the terrible pinnacle rocks that rip open the hulls of the steamers. They are constantly being searched for and marked with buoys by the wire drag of our coast and geodetic survey. Indeed, the seas about Alaska are so dangerous that they are sometimes called the graveyard of the Pacific. The commerce of the territory is rapidly increasing in importance, yet 50 years after our purchase, the United States Coast Survey admitted that 92% of its waters were unsurveyed and that it would take two vessels 59 years to complete a first survey of the exposed areas, in addition to the wire drag and inshore parties necessary in the sheltered portions. The government ships are keeping everlastingly at it, however, and I have been out with one of the wire drag boats and have seen how the needle-tipped peaks of the Panhandle coast are detected. A wire cable with buoys attached is slung between two ships and set at a fixed depth. As the vessels sail along, the buoys are pulled under like a fish line bob when the wire strikes a hidden rock, which is then marked by a float and its position recorded. Over a thousand pinnacle rocks, terrible menaces to navigation and undiscovered by the ordinary survey methods have been found by the use of the wire drag. But let us come back to Ketchikan. The town is situated on the southern shore of Ravilla Jigedo Island, in a region where the salmon come in great hordes every summer and near banks from which are taken most of the halibut sent from Alaska to the United States and to Canada. Ravilla Chigato is about one-third as large as Puerto Rico. It is 50 miles long and 20 miles wide and is made up of mountains which for much of the time have their heads in the clouds. Ketchikan lies right on the water against a background of towering green mountains crested with snow. The harbor is the shape of a half-moon, protected by islands. It has no beach to speak of and the business district rests upon piles. The streets are plank roadways built upon posts and much of the freight is carried about on trucks and carts pushed by men. Horses are unpopular for their shoes roughen the planks and they shake the town as they trot through the streets. So they are being replaced by automobiles and motor delivery trucks. The residential section of the city clings to the sides of the cliffs higher up. It is so steep that one has to climb stairways to reach some of the streets, while others have winding roadways of boards upon which slats have been nailed to keep one from slipping. The Ketchikaners make one think of tree dwellers who climb ladders to get to their homes. The best houses, which are high on the cliffs, far above the harbor, seem to grow out of the rocks. Nevertheless, Nearly every home has its little lawn with shrubs and flowers and a tiny garden patch, although the soil has to be sprinkled with gold dust to make them. In this connection, the captain on my steamer coming up told me a story of a Ketchikan man who sailed with him last month. This man was sitting at the captain's right hand at dinner. During one meal, he was in a brown study. Course after course passed and he ate but little. At last he burst out in an agonized soliloquy. 
I knew I'd forget it. I knew I'd forget it. I knew I'd forget it. What, said the captain, have you forgotten something your wife told you to bring back from outside? Yes, I have, was the reply, and I knew I'd forget it. She made me promise to bring seven sacks of good soil to lay on the rocks and make her a garden. And now I forgot it. Some of the Ketchikaners raise vegetables and berries. In the garden of H.C. Strong, I saw raspberry bushes as high as my shoulder, which for more than two months during the summer give him all of that fruit he can eat. The berries, which are large and of a fine flavor, never become mushy when ripe. Ketchikan also raises currants, salmon berries, and many beautiful flowers. There is so much moisture that the plants will grow on the rocks with very little soil. It has been raining steadily ever since I arrived, and today during a downpour I asked one of the citizens, Does it never stop raining in Ketchikan? He replied with a laugh, I hardly know. I have lived here only 15 years. The city really has rained for more than two-thirds of the year, and an annual precipitation of over 13 feet. The leaves of the trees drip almost as steadily as those of the famous forest sprinkled by the mist of the Zambezi Falls in Central Africa. Indeed, the southern coast of Alaska is one of the rainiest parts of the world. Juneau, the capital, is much like Ketchikan, while on some of the Aleutian Islands, a day of sunshine is a rarity, but the people go about regardless of the wet. They wear oilskin hats and rubber coats or slickers, and if they tramp up the mountains, they put on rubber boots reaching to the waist. Some of the ladies even have slicker suits consisting of skirts and jackets. No one thinks of staying away from a party or tea on account of the weather, and women go visiting clad in oilskins covering dresses fit for a party in New York or Washington. Some people here tell me, however, that Ketchikan has many bright days and that its climate is unsurpassed by any other part of our country. The inhabitants are healthy. The children have bright eyes and rosy cheeks. They play about everywhere, notwithstanding the rain. In the winter, they coast down the board roads, which in places run for more than a mile up and down the hills. The town has but little snow at any time of the year, but then the frosts are so heavy that there is splendid sledding until nine or ten o'clock in the morning. If there is not enough frost, the roads can be sprinkled at night and will be covered with ice in the morning. Many people of the United States think of all Alaska's winter as bitterly cold. Their idea of the country is expressed in Bret Hart's Arctic Vision, where the short-legged Eskimo waddles in the ice and snow and the playful polar bear nips the hunter unaware. Ketchikan has neither Eskimos nor polar bears, and there is little ice and snow. The thermometer seldom falls to zero, and the climate is as mild as that of Atlanta or Richmond. The stores here are excellent. Most of them are on the water front, built upon piles that rest on the rocks. The shops have plate glass windows, and the goods are well displayed. In one window I saw a full line of electrical apparatus, including electric irons, toasters, and heaters. Another shows a large supply of thermos bottles and baby carriages. The butcher shops have quarters of red beef just in from Seattle, and the fruit stores sell raspberries and strawberries grown in Alaska, oranges and figs from California, and apples from Oregon and British Columbia. The supply of eatables is quite as good as that of the provision stores in the States, and the prices are not much higher. 
Indeed, I believe one can live almost as cheaply in Ketchikan as in Cleveland, Kansas City, or Kalamazoo. I have a room and bath at the Revilla Hotel, one of the two leading taverns. The Revilla is a three-story frame building within a stone's throw of the sea. The hotel office is a loafing place and pool room as well, and the guests and outsiders are knocking the billiard balls over the tables at all hours of the night. As the hotel serves no meals, I have to go out to the restaurants. I am eating at the Poodle Dog Grill, where I sit on a stool at the lunch counter and eat my ham and eggs or other meat from a great oval platter. The Poodle Dog advertises these hot platters as its specialty and serves food in no other way. The town has an excellent and abundant water supply from a lake high up in the mountains. Anyone who wants a drink of pure mountain water has only to fit his mouth over the little porcelain bowls of the sanitary drinking fountains at every street corner and take in all he will. In addition to the lake, Ketchikan has a rushing stream flowing in cascades and rapids right through it. In the salmon season, this stream is one pink and silver mass of fish. The fish come by the thousands and swim up the stream to spawn, toiling their way through the rapids and jumping the falls. At that season, anyone may have fish for the taking, and quantities are caught for the canneries. This stream furnishes the city its electric power and runs the street lights and telephones. It gives electric heat to some of the houses. During my stay, I have had dinner with one of the leading citizens whose home is a beautiful house of ten rooms lighted and heated by electricity. The cooking is done on an electric stove, and hot water is supplied in the same way. Yet he tells me that his fuel and light bills, even in midwinter, are not more than $18 a month. End of chapter 2